Well, we're in our third week of a mini-series within a series, uh, and we're finishing up the idea of uh, denicing Jesus. When we started this, denicing Jesus, we talked about from uh, the Bible that Jesus is called the Lion of Judah. And as we began, we looked at a couple of the photographs of what that image was in the author's mind when he wrote that. And here's a picture of the King of the Beasts, uh, the Lion of Judah, very majestic, uh, stately looking there. The next shot is a very ferocious look of that King of the Beasts that I would not want to see up close and personal. But look at that and think Jesus. We don't normally. But that angelic being that talked about, talked about Jesus as, as the Lion of Judah. And so just to do a quick flyby of the weeks we've done, uh, you, if you haven't been here, might you get your phone out and take a screenshot. But so far, uh, we've looked at some of the not nice things Jesus has said. I have something to say to you, Simon. And whoo, that unfurled a big confrontation. Let the dead bury their dead, he said that. Hate your family compared to me. Most people are going to hell. It's hard for Americans to go to heaven. You can go to hell if you don't forgive. You can go to hell for wasting what you've been given. And then eat my flesh, drink my blood. That was so difficult, those verses there. Even followers of Jesus stopped following him when they couldn't make sense of that. Pastor Josh talked about it last weekend. Well, this week I want to go a little further. If you have the CLC app, you can follow along. Uh, but basically this next one reminds me of my mom. Uh, did you ever have your mom growing up say, you're going to poke somebody's eye out with that thing, right? right? Well, Jesus said, uh, gouge your eye out, basically. And uh, he does that in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. And what he's doing in this passage throughout this chapter is he's raising the bar, if you will, from Old Testament to New. In the Old Testament, he's going to be referring to Exodus chapter 20, which is the, the Ten Commandments. And we tend to look at that, thou shalt, thou shalt not, and all the stuff in the Old Testament, like that, was, that was the harsh version of God, God in a bad mood or whatever. And then you get to the New Testament, it's grace, and we kind of really soften all that up. And yet what Jesus really does in the Sermon on the Mount is he raises the standard from Old Testament to New, from thou shalt not in the Ten Commandments to what he's really talking about. And so with that being the setting, jump with me into the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And all the self-righteous people going, yep, I've never been to bed with anybody but my wife or my spouse. But I say to you, say but. I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out, pluck it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, Jesus isn't calling us. There's no history of, of, of a ministry of dismembering ourselves for the cause of Christ. But he is, by, by way of hyperbole, an extreme analogy. He's, he's trying to drill it home to us how serious we ought to take sin, how serious we ought to take fleeing from temptation. And he raises the bar. You heard it said you don't commit adultery. He does this over and over again. You heard it said don't murder. You heard it said you know, over. He said it's not just about outward behavior. It's about the inner person. And you can be well-behaved but still be sinning rampantly in your mind and within yourself. And that's what Jesus says is the intent of the law. 
And so for some reason, once we're in the New Testament, we kind of think God has, has kind of eased up on sin. And if you're under the impression that sin is no big deal because of grace, I would suggest that you rethink that. Because he is as serious about sin as he ever was. Another thought that Jesus said, would you just say Jesus said this? Okay. He said, be perfect. That's an easy one. And in, again, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, a few verses later, he says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now with that verse, how many of the rest of you are in trouble along, along with me? And, and unfortunately, we read that, and then we, we meet it with a phrase most of us have heard, well, I'm only... Yeah, you've heard it too. First of all, that is nowhere to be found in this book. So if you're quoting that... And, and in this book, it identifies that you're human, but in that, it identifies you're in a hopeless situation. You've fallen spiritually. You cannot get up. In fact, all of us as humans have sinned, that only human, and we fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin, the Bible says, is death. So it's, it's no laughing matter. Now, at the same time, to be consistent, I'll talk all throughout the year, we have to harmonize Scripture, Old Testament and New, and then within them as well. And so Paul talks about perfection and the pursuit of that, in a slightly different way, I kind of lean toward Paul's elaboration of what Jesus says here. And in uh, Philippians chapter 3, he says, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on. Stop here for a second. This is the guy who wrote half the New Testament. This is the guy who founded the New Testament church, okay? He is the Apostle Paul. And he says, I haven't attained it yet, but I press on. Say, I press on. So I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Next verse. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. I'm not perfect yet. But one thing I do. Turn to your neighbor or somebody just say, one thing I do. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We were debriefed on this last night as a team, and one of the members said, you know, I come from a really legalistic background, and so unfortunately every time I hear be perfect, it throws me into this legalism I can't keep up with. I don't know what to do with. And I said, I can relate to that, but while I'm not perfect... I don't just flippantly, huh, I'm only human. Blow off my sin and my failures. No, I, I realize I'm not perfect, but the one who called me is. And he calls me to that perfection. And so there is meant to be a struggle. There is meant to be a pressing on. There is meant to be a forgetting what lies behind. That's hard enough to forget what lies behind. What you or they have done, what, what you or they have, have seen or felt or identified about you or them, all that in the past, leave that behind. And Paul says, I press on to what God, God has for me. Why Christ laid hold of me. If you're a Christian, Christ laid hold of you for a reason. It's not just to be flippant about the sin. He died on a, cro he died on a cross to pay for sin. Because you sinned and I sinned, he died on a cross. How would you feel if the very reason you died for someone, they just shrugged off? No big deal. So rethink that. 
but also be in the struggle. No, I may not have laid hold of perfection yet. I'm not there yet, but I'm going to keep the fight. It's like Romans chapter 7. Paul talks about, uh, you know, the very thing I don't want to do, I do. The thing I want to do, I don't. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from the body of this death, he says. But in the very first verse of the next chapter, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And being in Christ Jesus, I am in the passion, in the pursuit, in the struggle of dying to myself daily, Paul says, and becoming more like the one who called me. And then this next one, before I get there, let me set it up. (laughs) This point has had a, a shelf life of its own during the last several weeks. Um... When I knew we were going this direction, I sat down and kind of laid out several verses that were de-nicing, showed how Jesus said things that weren't nice and stepped on toes and kind of sucker punched people in the face. And I laid them all out. And so I met with Pastor Josh and said, okay, I know I'm not going to be in, in this past weekend. And so I want you to speak that weekend. So we kind of divvied it up. And I tried to take most of the ones that were kind of the heavy lifting. And I said, and then you take this one. He went, oh, Thanks. And so as the week went on, I felt a little guilty for sticking him with this one. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll do it on video. And you can, last week, you can show it in the message on video. And so we shot the video. There's a video of this next point. It's about seven minutes long. And when we're done. We're kind of debriefing about it. And Nathan, who was our producer of it, goes, well, it was good. And it was truth. And you did it well. It's just different. Like when it's a really hard point, it's just better when you're kind of in the room. You kind of nuance it. But it'll be okay. So, okay. And so... Come praying, a couple days there. So finally I text the team. I said, pull the video. I'll preach it this week. So I'm going to preach it. Let's just take a vote by a show of hands. How many of you believe that if Jesus said it, we should hear it? Okay. So I didn't, repeat after me. He didn't say this. Jesus did. All right. Okay. Well, the point is, and, and for the next couple of points, and This one, and then two points later, will give some people applause lines. Don't applaud. Turn to your neighbor and say, don't applaud. Just tell. Okay, hold your applause to your inside self, okay? In fact, last service, two points from now, that when I talk it, I said no applause. 20 seconds later, there's a lady applauding over there. I called her out. I said, I told you, no applause. (laughs) It was fun, but anyway. So don't let that happen to you. Here's the point. And this point was not as delicate when I was a kid in church. But culture has changed. The landscape has changed. Here's the thought. God still hates divorce. You get to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and Malachi is speaking the words of God, and God says, I hate divorce. And he says, don't deal treacherously with the wife of your youth. Anyone who does doesn't have a remnant of the Spirit in them. And he is really against it. You fast forward, lest we think, well, that's the Old Testament God in a bad mood and he feels differently in the New Testament. Here's Jesus in Matthew chapter 19 in the New Testament. As we go there, it helps to understand, and, and the weekend team, we were talking about this, and they said, you know, It makes sense because there aren't a lot of analogies between what Jesus is like to the church. But one analogy is that he's the groom and we're the bride. Marriage is an analogy to what God is like toward us, Christ is like toward us. And as a side note, let me also say, 
Paul tells us in Corinthians that if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creature. Old things pass away. All things become new. I'm glad that's true. If you have a, a painful, difficult, dysfunctional marriage, in, or marriage history in your past before you came to Christ, that's in the past. And so it's now where we go from here. So with that said, Jesus said in Matthew 19, some Pharisees came to him testing him, and those are his adversaries, and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And Jesus answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Side note, not an applause line, but our gender is not our decision. God's already determined that and created us in the womb. And he said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. See, God invented marriage. Then they said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it's not been this way. And I say to you, here's where he raises the bar even more, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. He says nothing else. The one reason Jesus gives for divorce, permissible reason, is the sexual immorality of your partner. They've broken that covenant, and you are free to leave that relationship and remarry. That's it. Paul adds another instance that was a new experience in the New Testament church. Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience. It's in Israel. They're Jews. And as the church spread across the region, you now have Jews becoming Christians. And so you have a split faith household. And you can go ahead and read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And in that chapter, Paul basically says, okay, if you have a household where the husband or wife has become a Christian... If the unbelieving spouse will stay with you, stay with them, keep the marriage together, who knows what influence you'll be on them. But if the unbelieving spouse leaves, they say, I want nothing to do with you because you're a Christian. It's a bait and switch. That's not what I married. And they leave you for what I call spiritual desertion. Paul says the person left behind is not under obligation. You can leave that marriage and you can remarry because of spiritual desertion. Those are the only two clear instances in Scripture that allow divorce and remarriage. That's getting way more controversial now because, as I've said before, again, I'm from way back, but when I was in high school, I knew one friend whose parents weren't married. Now it's commonplace. And it raises a bunch of questions. Well, what about abuse and what about whatever? And um, certainly... I'm not telling someone if you're in a physically unsafe environment to stay there. You need to get some wise counsel how to move forward in that. But I also know that even the, the, the title of abuse is relative. I remember talking to one person who I was unsuccessful in convincing them otherwise and they, they divorced their spouse and left. And I remember because of the abuse and I said, what abuse are you enduring? Well, three different times she told me she wanted to get out of our marriage. And... No, oh, that's the abuse. And so it's, it's very relative. And again, I'm not saying stay where it's not safe. You need to get that help. But the, the difficulty that we have is that our culture doesn't even ask the question. 
Do I have the right to divorce? Much less do I have the right to remarry? And so what do I do with that? Because I also know that I'm preaching to people who you're like, this may be the first time you've heard this. You've already got a couple marriages behind you. Or you're in that now. Again, if all that happened before you came to Christ, I believe that that's wiped clean and you move forward. But for those who are Christians and you've got this dysfunctional circumstance, now what? I'm not saying, okay, undo all those marriages. No, God, the good thing, God doesn't tell us to undo all of our past and our sin and dysfunction and go forward. But what do we do? And I think Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 applies in, in this regard. And he says, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You ever so apprehensive your hands were shaking? Whatever you felt about that, you were like so, 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 so nervous to not mess up? There should be that level of seriousness about, okay, God, then how, how do I honor you? What, do I need to repent of things? Do I ask for healing and help and whatever? And how do I then move forward and honor you in that? And I'll be the first to admit, you know, Joyce and I find marriage is a challenge, and most married couples will identify that. We've been to several counselors to try to help us through the difficulties in our life, and then you add to that being in ministry. It's, it's hard. And I've stood before many couples and, and asked if you'll take this man, this woman to be your wedded wife, to have and to hold, and, and the vows go uh, for richer, for poorer, better, for worse, sickness and in health, till death do you part. And they all go, yes. Because they just assume all the doesn't apply. But after 42 years of marriage, I think most married couples will admit to me that worse happens, poorer happens, sickness happens. Can I hear an Amen. And, and it's till death do us part, and I kind of will quip that you either get it right or you die trying. And I remember uh, when I was a staff guy, so this is over 33 years ago, um, I have a master's in counseling, so most of the counseling fell my way. I'd spend 10, 12 hours a week counseling people. And so if by chance this is you and you remember it, I don't remember who it was, so you're off the hook. Don't worry about it. But I was counseling a couple, a Christian couple who were on the edge of divorce, and and when I asked, but why? And I can't remember, I think it was the husband. So I'm sitting in my office. I'm sitting in my chair. There's my desk. There's my credenza. And there's two chairs. And this person's here. And the other one's out of the room. Well, why, why are, do you feel you have the permission to leave this marriage? And they said, well, we're so miserable. And I don't think God wants me to be unhappy. I was probably having a bad day. I'm just thinking. It flipped the switch for me. I reached back and I grabbed my Bible that was sitting on my credenza and I slammed it on my desk. I said, tell me where it says that in this book. I was as shocked as they were. <laughs> I can tell you this. Irreconcilable, we can't get along is not in here. And, and if we can help you with that, well, we can help you with now what? Okay, given the marriage circumstance I'm in now, how do I honor God from here on out from this day forward? Uh, our marriage ministry is outstanding. And uh, married life, we've got a slide for it. So here's what I'm asking you to do. Everybody take your phone out, please. Just nudge your person next to you. Take your phone out. Come on, everybody get out. We're not going to go anywhere until you get your phone out. Do it. Okay? 
Come on. Get your phone out. Come on. Let's get it. Go. I'm calling you out. Got a phone? Got a phone? How dare you come to church without a phone? You got a phone in your purse. You just don't want to get it. <laughs> take a picture of that. Here's why I'm doing that. Because if people really, really need to take a picture of it, we'll feel self-conscious taking a picture of it. And they're going to like, try to do this, okay? So now we're all taking pictures of it, okay? So you might need help. I know somebody who needs help. But we have couples just like you that have been through the ups and downs of marriage who have been trained how to help other people, how to bear each other's burdens, and go through that to a better place. So if that's you, check it out. All right. Another thing Jesus said that just was not nice. I wouldn't have said it. In fact, when I read it, I was like, what? I'll paraphrase what he said. You call that faith? I'm like, I did. So here's the setting. The disciples are, several of them, professional fishermen. They're in a boat. They're rowing their way across the Sea of Galilee. You can see across the sea both ways. And it's surrounded by kind of foothill kind of mountains so that storms blow up really fast. And the Bible says they are working as hard as they can and they're afraid they're going to sink. And all of a sudden they see what they think is a ghost out there on the water walking toward them. And in Matthew chapter 14, verse 28, Peter said to him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Side note, if it was a ghost, he could have lied. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, come on. Oh, sorry. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Now stop there for a second. Peter is the only one of 12 who gets out of the boat and walks on water. That impresses me. I'm sure you've walked on water. I have not. I'd be going, high five, Peter. I can't believe it. How amazing is that? You walked, I don't know how many steps. You walked on water. Immediately, another thing he did was smart. Began to think he cries out, Lord, save me. I'm too much of a problem solver. Sometimes I wait till the third, fourth, fifth time I'm going down before I finally think, oh, I should ask God to help me, right? Immediately Jesus stretched out, took hold of him, his hand, stretched out his hand, took hold of him, and said to him, good job, Peter. You of little faith, why did you doubt? He says to the only human being we know of in all history who walked on water at his bidding, you call that faith? Let that sink in, in a non-humorous, in a somewhat troubling way, about the expectations Jesus has for your potential and mine as Christ followers. And that doesn't go down well, and again, this is a no applause point. I'm speaking to the old people. You'll hear it in a minute. That doesn't bode well in the participation trophy generation. I'm, I'm old enough that we didn't have participation trophies when I was a kid. And so I played Little League a couple of years. It took me those two seasons to know, I'm no good at this. I'm not playing this anymore. <laughs> but somewhere along the line, some coach talked to some team mom or team dad and said, you know what? Because when I was a kid, you had winners and what are we going to call the losers? <laughs> and that's it. And they kind of filtered out really quick. 
But somewhere, some coach, you know what? We shouldn't just honor the kids who, who do really good and have all this talent. And we should also give a participation trophy. Whoever they said that to should have slapped him in the face and said, bad idea. <laughs> but instead we said, oh no, this is a great idea. So now we give kids trophies for participating. Spoiler alert, I don't know any 30-year-old, come up and tell me later, if they have on their bookshelf or desk or whatever the participation trophy of my peewee whatever league, it doesn't have any staying power. But if, if we're going to celebrate just showing up, it's no wonder. Now, forget Scripture for the moment. Forget me, Jesus. Go to sociologists, psychologists, and HR professionals. What we now see in our current younger culture is what we have created, and that is overwhelming with anxiety and depression and, and the ability to persevere and tenacity. There's no staying power. We did that. We, we honor you for just showing up. And when I was a kid, I got an allowance in my home. I lived in John Tharp's home. And you've heard me say this before. If you've been around, I mowed the grass whenever the grass needed mowing. I washed both cars when we had two cars. Didn't have them my whole life. And then I had to clean my room and do whatever cleaning mom told me to do. And I washed the dishes or dried the dishes. And my allowance for that was I was allowed to live there. Period. No applause. I don't care you love your wife. One more. And, and so a lot of stuff I didn't have. I, could, I was so thrilled. I turned 13. I got a paper route. I made eight bucks a week. I could buy stuff. Then when I got a summer job that turned into a job I had all year long after school, I was earning money. I was making big money. I was making $2.05 an hour. Woo. And if I wanted it, my parents were sponsors, great. Earn it. That's such a foreign concept to a generation. How many of you are employed? Let me see your hand. Okay. How many of you did your boss ever come up to you and say, you know what, We've been we're going to give you a big whopping raise just because you show up. <laughs> if so, talk to me. I'm looking for a retirement gig after I, after I retire. <laughs> That's not the way life works. And what sociologists also show us is that one of the best things to strengthen your young person's character to prepare them for a world that doesn't honor participation trophies is learning how to deal with disappointment, learning how to not get everything I want when I want it, learning how to go with some unmet needs and learn how to persevere and push through it and to attain the prize. The analogy Paul draws to the faith has nothing to do with you just showed up. Read Hebrews chapter 11. It is a hero. It is a hall of faith of famous believers who went before us. And he goes through all these ones who did amazing things, incredible trials and tribulations. And they just rattles it off. And some were sawn in two and imprisoned. And da 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 They went through all that. I guarantee you the, the heroes of faith in heaven are not saying, she showed up at church. Give her a trophy today. Sadly, for many of us, this is as spiritual and engaged for Christ's sake as we get showing up. 
Here. And this is just supposed to be the refueling for what we do there. And I'm sobered when Jesus basically says, you call that faith? And he walked on water. What do you suppose his honest critique would be of us? You call that faith? I died, I died for that? I died for the way you're living, the choices you're... I died for that? Sometimes he's not nice. And then I'm going to put words in Jesus' mouth here. I ask awkward things. This one bothers me too. And I've, I've talked about this lightheartedly, uh, like Palm Sunday, on different occasions. And, and so, Glenn, I'm going to pick on you. You're on the front row and you're wearing this lit-up necklace, so you deserve to be picked on. I'm Glenn, I'm Glenn, you're here. Sorry. So if I said to you, Glenn, I think I'm going to pick on you before on Palm Sunday. Would you go on a UDF? You know where it's at? On the corner? And there's going to be a Lexus there in the parking lot. There'll be keys in it. Get the Lexus, bring it to me. If anybody stops you, just tell them Pastor Stan wants it. <laughs> You'll be fine. How awkward would that feel? Very. I picked up a guy named Bindus. He was a visitor last night. I picked that around the front row. I was like, he'll never be back. But anyways. <laughs> Jesus did that. Matthew 21. When they approached Jerusalem and come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the, the village opposite you. Immediately you'll find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. The Old Testament prophecies about Jesus riding into Jerusalem on an unridden colt of a donkey. I don't know about you, but he picked two disciples. I'd be glad he didn't pick me if I was one of the unpicked ones to go do that. That is awkward. I, I'm, I'm stealing a donkey. Thou shalt not. You sure, Lord? And yet, when you read the Gospels, they did a lot of awkward stuff. A lot of things out of their comfort zone. Me, I like comfort. I like convenience. Can I get an honest amen? In fact, most of what I do for Jesus is not awkward or uncomfortable at all. And on top of that, most of what I do for Jesus, I get paid to do is my job. And so I wonder about myself. I wonder about us, Lord. I mean, really? I mean, how, how out of your comfort zone are you living? And it's not just to totally be there. I didn't do it all the time. But I wonder how many detours out of my comfort zone I'm just speeding right by. And you are too. Because comfort and convenience are deafening. And we don't hear or see anything else. And when we, when we have the, do that, we kind of blow it off real quickly and we just shrug it off instead of the fact that Jesus would say, no, I, I ask awkward things. Are you willing to do that which is different from what your routine is? Denicing Jesus. 
And then last thought, be authentic from the inside out. It's words in Christ's mouth, but it's the essence of what he said. And he says it in a really not nice way to, again, his, his adversaries, the scribes and Pharisees. Matthew 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. In fact, read this chapter. He's just pummeling them. You hypocrites. That always goes across well. For you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but on the inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly, you, you appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You're a bunch of fakes. He doesn't have a lot of tolerance for that. And however we communicate Jesus or explain him, he's pretty hard-hitting. He's pretty all about righteousness. And what concerns me in, in modern-day trends of at least American Christianity, we've tried to make Jesus and Christianity so palatable, so enjoyable, so cool. And uh, I remember several years ago, um, I was invited to go speak to a group of pastors in Northeast Ohio, and Pastor Dustin Smith was on staff. He went with me. If you know Dustin, that guy can lead you into worship like nobody's business, and um, they've moved to California, and he's kind of gone through a lot, but he's back on track and, and pastoring a church. And so if you don't know Dustin, I'll just say that tattoo parlors have made a lot of money off of him, okay? <laughs> Great guy. Love him to this day. And uh, so we were at this church, and we kind of talked together in front of this group of pastors, and one friend of mine came up to me, and he said, I'm just trying to wrap my head around both of you being at the same church. He looks at Dustin, and he goes, you're so hip. That's me, he goes, and you're... Not. <laughs> and I think Dustin and I are both agree that regardless of what your style is, when it comes to Jesus, there's nothing cool about him. He's not hip. We've tried to so minimize the offensiveness of the one who calls himself a stumbling block. Because Jesus, when he calls us, doesn't call us to this really cool life and all that and more. He calls us to pick up a cross daily and follow him. Paul says, I die daily. I have to crucify my flesh regularly. And Jesus, when he does describe himself, if you want to imitate me, let me give you two qualities to imitate. And so, boy, if we're taking notes, we're going to write this down. He says it in Matthew chapter 11. He says, come to me. And this, this verse troubles me, and I've wrestled with it with God. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. <sighs> Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and humble in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I remember years ago, it was in midweek, we had a service. And I wasn't speaking, but, but this verse came up in their message. And there was a prayer time afterwards. I knelt down at the pew in our old sanctuary. And I said, God, I don't know what is wrong or how to interpret this, but as far as I'm at, where I'm at in life, this yoke is not easy and the burden is not light. I don't know what to tell you. And that may be where you're at. And when he says, I'm gentle and humble in heart, we tend to take gentle and humble and, and we conform him to our image. He is gentle and humble fierce he's the lamb yes but he's the lion and how to reconcile all that into a healthy 
more complete understanding and image of who Jesus is because we are always in the business of recreating him in our image. And as I think about this, a friend of mine who's a student at UC in his senior year, he texted me, he said, you know, the first week we did Dean Icing, it reminds me of, of how they talked about Jesus as the character Aslan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I've, I had that book at home, so I went and I got it because I remember it. And it's an allegory that C.S. Lewis wrote for Christ and the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus, not surprisingly, in this allegory is a lion named Aslan. And these children, siblings, they enter into this imaginary world called the, the, the Narnia, and they interact with, with speaking animals and whatnot as they're making their way to, to meet Aslan. And it says, as for Aslan himself, the beavers and the children didn't know what to do or say when they saw him. People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great, royal, solemn, overwhelming eyes. And then they found they couldn't look at him and went all trembly. And that's when they saw him. But as they're approaching him, they said, tell us about Aslan. Who is Aslan? asked Susan, one of the little girls in the story. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver. Why, don't you know? He's the king. There's a song, a poem about the king. It says, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan, a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Susan went on to say, is... Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else foolish. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Jesus Christ is good. Jesus Christ is the king. He is the lion of Judah, but he is not always nice and he is not always safe, but Jesus Christ is always good. And that understanding, that concept of dissonance, where I don't fashion him into my own image and make him just this savior that winks at my sin and all oh, you can do better. And hey, no big deal. I find someone else. No, he is not that. And our prayer through this series and denicing Jesus is that we come to wrestle with verses I can't fully explain to you, and have a clear understanding of this amazing Prince of Peace, Savior, and King of Kings, Line of Judah, that Jesus is.
of my prayers, would you get confused as to who was the master and who was the servant? Too often my prayers are more like dictation to the divine instead of how can I serve you? you join me in prayer? Jesus, Lord Jesus, you're so beyond our comprehension Beautiful and amazing, dreadful and ferocious, but always good. Lord, I pray that the last few weeks will simply trouble us, challenge us, help us to, to go on our own biblical, prayerful struggle, to more clearly see you and also see the ways in which we've kind of dumbed you down or softened you up or made you who you're not. We're thankful for amazing grace. God, without that, I couldn't survive. We're thankful for love that we can't be separated from. At the same time, Lord, we pray that in this day and age that is so rewriting everything, including who you are and what is truth, that we would, we would have a clear reawakening of the one who called us, who laid hold of us, Jesus. I pray for all of us who are struggling one way or another, God, whether make us aware of how we shrug off our sin and minimize it. For every married person here, husband and wife, whether things are going great or horrific and difficult, we pray you, you bless and help and guide. For those with painful marital circumstances, God, give wisdom on how to go forward in that and, and to honor you through that. Lord, help us to grow in our faith and to be willing to leave places of comfort and convenience to, to be stretched and challenged for your sake and that all of us would learn the, the gentle, humble heart of Christ, that the fruit of your Spirit would loom large in us. But Lord, that we would keep our eyes on Jesus and run with endurance and fight the fight that is before us. And Jesus, you gave us the litmus test. By this will all men know you're my disciples. It's how you love each other. Let us be a community that loves each other ferociously. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here. I've asked Caleb just to play. If you want to stay and reflect and pray about what you've heard, you're welcome to do that. Otherwise, God bless you. Have a great and safe week.